Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 58 of the Haskin Cast podcast. I'm your host, Scott Haskin, and here to talk about the eighth and final episode of season three of Stranger Things. I've had such a good time going over these episodes. I hope you guys have found it interesting and entertaining. And uh, yeah, it's done. We're done. It's over. The last episode. And uh, I have to say, this is a pretty damn powerful episode. I think the uh, the builds and everything that they brought up to this point have been fantastic. Um, just amazed. I mean, wow, what a fantastic episode. Um, have a lot of notes, so let's get into it and find out who Dusty Bun is. If you've watched the episode, you already know, but I was just kind of out of left field. Uh, so we open up with uh, being at the mall and uh, have uh, Elle's makeshift surgery that Jonathan was brave enough to step in and do despite how painful he knew it was going to be for Elle. Uh, I kind of like the fact that he's like, you know, he hands the spoon off and, and he's like, here, put this in your mouth. And somebody goes, Jesus Christ, like, it's so bad that she has to bite down on something. Did you not already know how bad this was when you looked at the wound on her leg and saw that there was something moving around in there? Uh, thought thought that was just kind of a weird uh, place for placement for that. But, uh, you know, of course, Elle is uh, experiencing some pretty excruciating pain here. And uh, Jonathan is digging in there with his fingers. What I didn't understand about this is you could see the thing moving around from underneath where his hand is. So why didn't he put or someone else put their hand outside of her skin underneath trying to force out towards the top, towards the hole he cut, whatever it was that was moving around in there? thought that was a little bit strange. Seems like that would be the uh, the, the rational thing to do. Uh, even in the middle of uh, panic and all that, you know, if you, that should be the instinct, I, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But uh, eventually it gets out and it's uh, starts making its way away from them and then just immediately gets stomped by Hopper's boot, which had nowhere near the power of the Russians clompy boot, but had enough power to squash this thing to, uh, to nothingness anyway. And uh, so now everyone's back together, which is really great. Uh, the first time actually in the entire season that everyone's been uh, together in the same room at the same time. And uh, so now they're uh, they're going to start to form their final plan here and then break off again into their groups so that every little group is now once again isolated from everyone else and uh, still trying to stay connected through the walkie talkies, but uh, not not quite succeeding 100 percent there. And uh, now that they're all back together, uh the uh, Murray, gotta love Murray. He's trying to take charge of this whole thing and put the uh, plan together because he's the one that has the info on the underground base. So he starts formulating a plan. And then Erica, sweet Erica, who I love so dearly, uh, is just a total bitch to him for absolutely no reason whatsoever. Again, like, why is this child so headstrong? Why is she has, has she not been afraid or upset or intimidated at a single point through all of this? I just don't, I just don't get it. it. It's so unrealistic as far as I can tell. But uh, so she stands up to Murray and of course, Murray's like, who is this little four-year-old? And and she snaps back at him. But then Dustin, someone who's obviously a little more rational, comes in and uh, he's a little more polite to Murray. And Murray seems to give in to him uh, a little bit easier because he understands that Dustin is not this annoying little girl. He's actually trying to be helpful instead of just a brat. But he does take Dustin a little more seriously. Dustin has a better approach. He's obviously a little more intelligent, a little more calm, a little less bitchy. And uh, he, he at least takes his information uh, under consideration. But then they don't listen to him. 
you know, these kids were stuck down there. They know their way around. They got out. You would think that instead of just going, well, here's kind of what he told me and what I'm visualizing based on what he said, why wouldn't you listen to people that have actually been there and can give you some information? And of course, Dustin in, uh, in regular character volunteers to go help because he's actually kind of fearless half the time. And uh, Hopper just shuts that down. So uh, they go on without him anyway. Dustin comes up with the idea for the radio tower, which is so convenient that he built a radio tower in episode one that would just happen to be able to reach from the north to the south pole. So it can certainly run, what, uh, 20 floors or so under the ground to the Russian base. He seems really confident that he can uh, transmit through the earth. So, okay. We tend to take a lot of things with a grain of salt in this show. Like the fact that the the idea that turning the keys will blow the machine up, I, I'm not really sure how I understand that part of the plan. I mean, the, the two keys turned it on. I would think turning the two keys would turn it off. And why is it running without the keys in there? You know, they, they put the two keys in to start it up, and then they just leave it running, take the two keys, lock it back in the suitcase. That go- goes back in the vault in the wall. What if they had to turn it off? How would they do that? That that really doesn't make any sense to me. But also, why would turning the keys blow it up when it should just turn it on and off like a car engine? So I, I have a little bit of a, of a challenge with the premise of it. If you see something different in that, please, for the love of God, let me know. Because that's a pretty big point for me. Um, send me a note over at scott at scotthaskin.com or, or on the YouTube uh, link or, or on uh, Facebook in the group or wherever. But please let me know if you see that a little bit differently. The one thing I will say, I'll just point this out now instead of later when we see it. But the one thing I will say is it's very obvious now that it would take two people to legitimately turn those keys at the same time. I love Joyce's idea. I love that she came up with that so quickly and that it worked. But realistically, those two keys looked way closer together in episode one than they did here. Um, That could just be the way they filmed it or just the way that I saw the angle or whatever, but uh, I'm going to take back all the things I said about the two key method. It is definitely obvious in this episode that it would actually take two people. Although I think if I remember right, my argument was not that they actually had to be turned at the same time, that they could actually be turned in succession. And I think you could hop from one place to another quickly enough possibly to do that. Um, But again, that's my assessment. I'll actually have to go back and watch that uh, opening of the season again and see how that looked now that I've seen this perspective of it and uh, see if my feelings change at all. But for now, uh, let's get back to the kids. So uh, they have the the L surgery. Everybody meets up. Murray's like, I hate kids. And then they uh, then they start going off onto their different plans. So uh, Steve and Robin and Dustin and Erica are on their way to the radio and uh, the rest of the kids are, are trying to get out of the mall. And then they get caught uh, by Billy's car, who is in Christine-like fashion, waiting down the street in the fog, revving his engine, waiting to pounce. Um, I'll have to look and see what year Christine came out. I want to say that was 1981, but I could be wrong. Uh, but in any case, so that's kind of a, a, a throwback to Christine to me. And uh, just again, one of the many uh, 80s references that we've seen on the show so far. Uh, but that, that was kind of cool. I, I like that him just kind of stalking them and saying, you know what, I'm not going to not going to do anything unless I need to. But if I need to, I have no problem doing it, as we see a little later on. But it was great o- overall. I really thought that was um, that was a cool shot. So. Let's see what happens next. So now we're we're starting to separate groups again. And uh, L and, and Hopper have a really nice moment, though, before they go their separate ways. And, and it's nice because you don't know at the time, although I kind of got the feeling 
that maybe this was the end from hop for, for Hopper because that was a very um, overly touching moment. And because of that, I thought, you know, maybe he's not coming back. Maybe this is the last one that they're going to have together. And uh, of course we do find out that that turns out to be the case. Now the, uh, the emotion between the two of them, though, that strong connection is still there even after she learned, because she has not seen Hopper since she found out that he was the one that pushed Mike to treat her like shit. So instead of being angry at him, instead of harboring all that in the moment, she is actually just really glad to see him. Um, she's worried about him. She's worried about what's going to happen. I love the fact that he came back and said, um, you know, honey, you don't have to worry about me. It's after you, not me. I thought that was really important. But here's the part where, again, I start to get lost. And this, we do this in life. I see it all the time. I see it all the time in, in films and movies. People say, do you understand? And the person nods, yes. And they're like, okay. Well, how do we know that they understood what you meant? They're just thinking that they understood what you meant, but they could think that you meant something completely different than you actually do. Because you're not asking them to regurgitate that information so that you're clear that they understand it. They're just saying, yeah, I get it. And you're like, okay, well, good. I got my point across. I win. But you really don't know that. And I just looked up, Christine, that actually came out in 1983. So that would have been prior to the moment in their timeline that Billy was sitting there in the car. Uh, but shot very Christine-esque anyway. So, yeah, so I have a, an issue with that. But that is not an issue with Stranger Things. That's just an interview uh, uh, an issue with life in general uh, because I see people do that stuff all the time. People have said that to me. They're like, are you sure you understand what I'm saying? I'm like, yeah, of course I do. And they're like, oh, okay, great. Like, how do you know? Uh, but I also see that in television and film all the time as well. So just thought I'd point that out, but uh, a beautiful moment between them just the same. And then uh, the Billy Christine moment happened. And so why are they still in the car? Like they see him, they know he could rev the engine and just take off at any time. He's got his lights on. He can see them there. Why do they wait until Nancy does this jump scare moment where she comes out of nowhere and pounds on the window? She scares all of them. I think they were trying to give our hearts a little bit of a jump there too. And then everybody gets out of the car, like get out of the car as soon as you see that you're in danger. And they do it again later. So they haven't really learned anything. They should have listened to the podcast. Uh. So we talked about the machine um, when they, when, as soon as, uh, as soon as Murray says, you know, we, we should be able to get in and out without even being seen. Of course, that's when they get seen is right after that uh, sort of uh, like in Jurassic Park, when they say, as long as the Raptors can't figure out how to open doors. And then the next thing you see is a Raptor opening a door. Uh, but I, I like that he tried to negotiate. And then at the end, Hopper was like, this isn't going anywhere and just mows him down with his machine gun. I, I like that because it shows how serious Hopper is at this point, how non-bullshit he is. But it also kind of makes me go back to that point where he was in the funhouse and he shoots the the Terminator Russian guy and in the chest a bunch of times, doesn't bother to do the headshot to really make sure that he's gone. And um, I, I think that he's maybe he's stronger now, but it just seems like something he would have done given the mentality he's at at this point. And really, if you think about it, as far as the timeline goes, what was that an hour ago that he shot the Russian in the funhouse compared to when he's down inside the base an hour, an hour and a half? I mean, not really a lot of time for his character to change and get that much stronger. So I thought that that was a little interesting. So he mows them down and then they carry on. Um, now we're back in the car with uh, Steve and and uh, Dustin and them and 
there's they're going back to the Susie doesn't exist thing. So you know that we're about to meet Susie. I mean, if you really start paying attention to when people lay down certain comments, they're really precursors to keep this in your head because somewhere later on it's going to make a difference. And this is the second time we've heard that Susie doesn't exist. So now it's pretty obvious that we're in the last episode. We're probably about to meet her. She's going to do something pivotal. It's going to be important that he's met this girl at summer camp. Uh, And of course, you know, we do. And uh, she's actually pretty cool, but we'll get back to that later. So so then we're back to uh, more walkie-talkie shenanigans. Uh, Same thing. I've said it enough. Um, but also the, uh, the car, the, uh, the one that they're trying to push over when they're in the mall and look at Jonathan. So he's on the other side of a banister or railing of some sort, and he's trying to push the car over. He's got no leverage whatsoever. He's probably the strongest one out of all of them. And he's in a position where he has just like, he could push on it, but there's no way he's got the leverage to push that over. So that really doesn't make any sense. And then of course they realize this and then they all get on top of the, the banister or whatever it is. And then they can push the car over from the, the top angle where they can actually reach far enough to, uh, to send it over back on, on uh, right side up. So, uh, you know, and again, and I have to, to consider the fact that yes, they're in a panic mode here, but it seems like in panic mode, your, your uh, adrenaline kicks in and your brain kicks in and you start doing things that uh, get you where you need to be to, to get to safety as quickly as possible. So I don't know if that's a writer thing. I don't know if it's a visual thing or a time thing. They needed to extend that out a little bit for the monster to do whatever it needed to do. But uh, definitely something that I think in the, in the heat of all of it, somebody would have said, Hey, we need leverage or, you know, we need to get to the top or something like that. So then we're back in the tunnels again. And I'm going to say, I'm just going to say it. This whole thing is far-fetched. It's definitely far-fetched. They've never been down there. There could be a soldier at any single point walking by that could call them out, that could shoot them, that could call for help. Uh, and and they just magically kind of get through all of this as if they lived there. And, uh, you know, map or no map, I, I think the Dustin and Murray thing was kind of cute, but uh, map or no map, they could have spent hours wandering around down there trying to figure out where to go. And Dustin doing all this from memory, having been there once running around in a panic, would not have this as well mapped out on his head either. But it's kind of one of the things that you go, okay, I kind of have to go along for the ride here. Just like if you're watching Angels and Demons or The Da Vinci Code and these mysteries that have been around for hundreds of years, Robert Langdon is just solving in one day and some of them in less than an hour as if you know these were just puzzles that were created and it's his first crack at it and it was somebody that wasn't that good at creating puzzles. You kind of have to go along on certain things for the ride. And this this is one of those things that you just can't get around it. I mean, if, if you're going to build a secret underground base, whoever the hero is, is going to have to figure out how to get around it very quickly. And uh, you just go with it. But I will say there's some lovely moments between Joyce and Hopper here. And I think them um, actually making a date, an official date, and and having that connection, even though they've been arguing this whole time, that really sets up the end to be that much harder than it needed to be. Uh, you, you have to give a lot of uh, props to Joyce as a character for, uh, for doing what she has to do, despite the, the outcome that she knows is going to uh, happen. And, uh, but I like this little moment. I kind of like the stuff that they had between them in there. That was good. Um, so then we're back in the mall and Dustin's trying to reach everyone. Uh, the monster picks up a a small part of himself. Like he's just walking through and he sees that little uh, bit that they got out of Elle's leg. And he stops and waits for it to merge with him, which was very much Terminator 2 when uh, Robert Patrick is out on the road and, uh, you know, he loses them 
and that little bit of his arm that uh, Edward Furlong throws out onto the pavement, he walks up and then it, it just kind of melds into his foot. Um, so this was very much Terminator 2, even though that was way later. But uh, but kind of a neat thing. And then uh, the the tentacle search with the monster, I thought graphically, I thought that was absolutely amazing. Um, very cool the way that it, uh, you know, it was searching them out, that it was it was kind of patient in a way, really relying on its senses, I think, even though it was failing miserably. And uh, it was kind of cute, the mannequin with the same shirt that Elle was wearing. But it's it's one of those things where it, it's like this monster could just be flying through things and, and really could just take them out anytime he wanted. But um, but they really slow it down. But I think I've seen some kind of scene like this before. Like it really, really looked familiar to me. And I can't really think of what it was. I want to say maybe it was something in a Transformers movie. But I, I honestly can't remember where I've seen it. If, you, if you've seen something like that and you can think of it, let me know. Um, it seems like it was something electronic or some, some kind of tentacly creature. But in any case, uh, it certainly seems to be taking its time, especially when it's right there and it should be able to... I don't know if it can smell or how it actually... How the tentacles actually detect their prey, but it was right there next to Mike's head. I mean, you know, either you suck at this or... Uh, you're really just trying to build tension for some reason. Maybe you're wanting to put fear into them before you close in on them. Um, obviously, the monster is very confident, very cocky. So that could be. Maybe it enjoys that fear just like it did with Nancy, where it got right up in her face and screamed at her before uh, you know, eating her or assimilating her or whatever he was going to do. Um, so then uh, we're back in the tunnels again. And the, uh, the whole, uh, again, another opportunity for... Uh, a precursor paying out paying off so you've got murray saying and if anything else happens just smile and nod and of course they do and it works which no um but you know if you again if you see these little lines a lot of them become something that are uh just little seeds to plant that get watered later in a in a television show or in a movie but uh it, it it's uh it's something that you know murray would do i I just kind of feel like murray would say anything just to go i don't know i'm not really responsible for what you do just do this or whatever but uh, i i kind of noted that in my head that that was probably something that we would see as the episode unfolded uh then we're back outside in the parking lot again i mean this is a lot of action the scenes are jumping from one thing to another reasonably quickly there's not a lot of lag time in this episode um until later but uh, I, I thought the action and the pacing in this, especially the first half of the episode, was great. So now we're back outside and uh, they're trying to fix the car. They got the ignition wire out of one car. They're putting it in another. And for those of us that had auto shot back in the 80s uh, and remember, you know, distributor caps and plugs and timing and all that, um, this certainly uh, rang a bell. But for some reason, knowing that Billy's right there, hearing him revving his engine, knowing he could just take off at any time, the kids get in the car and they're waiting there for the car to get started. Instead of making sure the car could start and then getting inside of it so that they weren't trapped, they wait until, uh, or they just go ahead and get in it and hope for the best. And I also noticed that all the uh, firecrackers are strapped in in boxes to the roof of the car when they had time to do that, as opposed to throwing it in the trunk, I'm not sure, but that's where they're at. Uh, which I I also noted that that would be important later when I saw this. Uh, So now Nancy, he starts coming towards them and Nancy pulls out the gun. She's standing between him and the car that everyone else is in and she's shooting at him. Now at any 
intelligence in physics would tell you that at that velocity, even halfway from where he started to where they were standing, if, if she shot him, let's say, in the head and killed him instantly, at that speed, the car is still going to likely hit them. And for her to just stand there in the way until the very, very last second made no sense whatsoever. Uh, she was out of bullets. Um, coming that fast, she was very unlikely to get out of the way anyway. And if Steve hadn't decided to go back and just happened to have the most perfect timing in history, as you would only in a movie, uh, they would be dead. They would all be dead because they all got in the car and the car couldn't move. So, again, not the best decision. Um, I, I, I can't really understand why she would do that. But uh, why was everyone else in the car? That's another question. So anyway, so the, the fireworks are strapped to the car. They get out. They're heading down the road. The monster's chasing him because it knew, you know, it felt something was wrong with Steve. So it left them all to go check on them, even though it was hunting L, who apparently really is the most important thing at this point. Uh, which then sets up uh, Steve to actually go after her directly. And uh, it, it, was, it was really, really well the way that all this played out. But uh, in any case, so Steve now is uh, in, in the car and uh, they're, they're all chasing after them and uh, the fireworks are on top. And then the monster, I, I don't know how fast this thing can actually move because sometimes it was like right behind them and then other times it was way far away. And um, I, I'm not really sure the, the actuality of, of all that, whether like versus camera trickery and um, hoping that no one really noticed that sort of thing. But it, it really, like a monster that's that aggressive and whatever, and was right behind them at one point, really lost a lot of ground. And uh, of course, it turns around because it senses that um, that Billy has L. And so obviously that's way more important than chasing these other kids down because they've really, they're really not that important. They're just trying to help prevent him get L, but now he can get her, so he doesn't need these guys anymore. And they realize it, and then they go back to the mall with all their fireworks. Um, in the middle of this, now, uh, Dustin has finally contacted Susie. And so now we know that she's real. As I said, they've mentioned this twice, but uh, it had to play out at some point, and we knew that he was not making her up. So uh, Susie is cute as hell, really cool, very intelligent. kind of reminded me of a very uh, vibrant version of Isadora Smackle from Girl Meets World. Uh, similar look, but just like way more energetic and happy and lovey and not someone who's just cut off from emotion almost entirely. And, uh, but here's, here's the, the challenge I had with this. Why wasn't Dustin like, Hey, I really care about you, but we have people's lives are actually in danger right now. I, I need to, I need your help. I need it right now. Instead of just singing songs and playing this, this little, Oh, you're cute. No, I don't know who that was. Let's switch frequencies game. I mean, you know, it, it, in the middle of all of this, I can see him just being, hey, people's lives matter more than my little relationship, and I'm sure we'll be able to fix things, but we got to get this done. Uh, because the fate of everything, really, if you think about it, changed with that delay. If he would have gotten the code out of her right away, then they would have been able to turn the keys before the Russian guy came back and started the fight that caused uh, Hopper to end up out on the platform, and everything would have been different. But even not knowing that up front, he knew that there were emergencies. This monster is hunting everybody down. Every second matters. Get it done. And uh, I was absolutely amazed at the fact that, you know, they go into this song. And it, first of all, that was the dumbest thing that they've done on the show. Um, 
I don't really think we needed that moment of levity right there. I, I get that they're kids, but they're playing in an adult world now. And uh, I just thought that whole thing was ridiculous myself. It did make for a cute moment later, you know, when uh, when Lucas and, and Max are teasing Dusty, uh, Dustin. But uh, in this moment right now, no, that was just a ridiculous thing to have happen. And uh, but it did. It did happen. And then, of course, you know, she gives him the code and uh, and then all's OK. They can get into the to the uh, wall safe where the briefcase is, which, again, I don't understand why the keys are in the wall safe if the machine is running. But they are. So we just go for it. But yeah, I thought that was just absolutely stupid. Now, once again, much like walkie talkies, I don't know anything about ham radios. But does this scene make sense? Can they actually sing together and hear each other singing? I, I don't know. And when they switch frequencies, did everyone else switch frequencies with them? Because they all seemed to be able to hear what was going on. They were all like, oh my God, this is so stupid. Can we get to the point? Just like I was. Uh, so can, can a ham radio work that way? I don't know. I don't think so. Um, I know a CB can't, but I don't, I've never operated a ham radio. So I'm not really sure. But um, again, that whole thing was just absolutely ridiculous. But it happened. So then we move on. And uh, let's see. So then we go back to um, Joyce and Hopper and they get the, uh, the the keys out of the safe in the briefcase. And can anybody tell me why the hell they're waiting to get this done? And there's just such a delay. They go into the room, they see the machine. Uh, the first thing they should be doing is, you know, I, I could see taking a second to go, oh my God, this is crazy. And then getting the keys out of the box and putting them in the thing and twisting them. Like, we got to get this done. There's no reason to wait. This is what we're here for. We're on a mission. We could die at any second. We have to get this done before something happens. But instead, they just dawdle around until just before they're about to turn the key, magically, the Russian guy comes back. And uh, he and Hopper get in this major fight that bring him out of the room and onto the catwalk. Joyce is knocked out because the Russian guy hit her. And uh, so really, Hopper's got to get rid of him and get back into that room and turn the keys at this point. But they, uh, you know, he gets Hopper in a very compromising position where his head is right next to the gears of the machine. And at that point, you realize, okay, so this is how this is going to end. He's going to make a move. The Russian guy's going to end up uh, dying on the machine. And, uh, and then he's going to get back and, and help Joyce twist the keys and we're going to be done. But that's not what happens. Well, the, the machine part was, and that's how the Russian died. You totally saw that coming. But uh, he doesn't go back to the room. He doesn't even try. And that's what kind of bothered me. Like, at least start moving if you can get there before, she, before the machine actually explodes. Because you don't know how long it's going to be from the time she turns the keys, if she can actually even do it. And he doesn't even know she can do that at this point. He sees her standing there, but he can't see the strap. He can't see, you know, what her reach is, what her situation is. But he knows what that room is like because he helped put the keys in. So that being the case, why didn't he start moving back? It could have been 30 seconds from the time that those keys were twisted till that machine broke down and and slaughtered everybody. He had no idea. Instead, he just stands there going, okay, well, I guess I'll die now. And uh, doesn't even try. And as, you know, as somebody who's taken guardian of a child, uh, especially one as, as, as powerful as Elle and has been through the things that she's been through. I really don't understand his motivation for not at least trying to get back there in time. Um, and I only say that because he didn't know for sure if Joyce could turn the keys. If he knew she could, and then he was like, we have to end this as quickly as possible. My life isn't worth waiting another 30 seconds. That I could understand. But he really didn't know she could do it. And you know, you've got a child at home that you're taking care of. So 
why not try? Especially now that you know that she loves you or, or she has feelings for you, at least on top of all of that. So I really don't get his motivation for just standing there and waiting to die like a jackass. But he did. And supposedly, he's dead. We'll talk more about that later. So uh, so all that goes on. The, the machine, I don't know how the machine is still operating anyway. I mean, the thing is on fire. It's sparking all over the place. Uh, I don't really know how it's still sending a strong beam. It seems like it should be shutting down on its own just because of, uh, you know, the mechanics of it. Uh, but yet, uh, from what Murray did. But for some reason, it's still going. It's still shooting a beam into the wall, which however long they've been shooting this thing in, they're not getting anywhere. It's just keeping it open enough to give that connection to uh, the monster so that the monster can keep going after L. And I'm not sure what its motivation is to get L, if it's revenge or if it's, you know, it needs power from her or what, what really the, uh, the actuality of it is other than just being pissed off. So, uh, so yeah, just get it done. And then, uh, I, I don't understand why the machine is still operating. Um, but, uh, then we go to, uh, the L and Billy scene and, uh, it, it, this is the first time really that we've seen L just completely helpless. I mean, she's, she's been knocked out. She's being carried on, uh, Billy's shoulder into the mall where the beast is going to come in and just, uh, assimilate her, or do whatever he's going to do to her. And uh, you're like, this can't be happening. No, she's going to get out of it. This is another James Bond 007 moment where the clock is counting down and it's going to stop right before he dies. And you're like, there's no way they can kill Elle off. She's she's the center of the show. But there's still that part, point in your head where you're like, but what if it does? Like, what if it actually eats her and that cha- just changes the dynamic of the show and they have to go a season learning how to fight without her until she magically reappears again or something? And so, you know, there are some uh, reasonable stakes here. So, um, so just as uh, as the creature's about to uh, pounce down, uh, the uh, the kids return with the fireworks, which uh, which was the the idea that they were making fun of that Lucas had. Thank you, Lucas, for stepping up and doing something important. And um, I mean, he did help with the slingshot and stuff, but he's just been so minimized this season. And I think he's such a strong character that uh, he really could have been more involved. He's just been kind of a sidekick through this whole thing. And, um, wait, but what I want to know is how did they get, like, they, they saw the monster was going back into the mall. They take the time to unstrap all the fireworks from the roof of the car and somehow drag them into the mall. Now, I'm actually going to guess that the mall is half subterranean. And that might explain why when L threw the car at the uh, Russian guards, they had, they were upstairs because the mall appears to be only one level on the outside, but on the inside, it's two levels. So it looks to me like, uh, that second level is subterranean, which was, which would explain that. But, um, so even if they didn't have to carry the fireworks upstairs or an escalator, they, they still had to drag those cases inside the mall. I don't know how they put those bombs together because like, uh, you know, the precursor when Lucas was saying, you know, if you put four of these together, then you get like TNT or six of them together, whatever it was. And uh, it seemed like they had a lot more fireworks than they actually picked up from the the uh, grocery store. So uh, I don't know how all that happened. But again, it's like one of those things that you just have to go with. Somehow they managed to get all this in there and prepped and ready to go. And they're, uh, they're just blasting this monster with them, just kind of throwing them willy nilly, like just aiming for the monster and not, you know, trying to get it at his head or anything like that. Uh, it'll break a leg off or something to really disable it. It just seems like they're just trying to keep it distracted and, and keep hurting it and hope that something will happen, like hope for the best, almost like you would like a video game boss that you really don't know how to defeat. 
And uh, it, now that I think about it, it kind of does look like one of those, uh, what's that green thing in, uh, in the battle in uh, Attack of the Clones from Star Wars? I don't remember the beast name, but it was, it was like green and it had six legs or whatever. It was kind of insect looking, kind of reminds me a little bit of the beast uh, without all the tentacles uh, and kind of moves in a similar way too. But uh, so anyway, so they're weakening it, which weakens Billy, which gives L the end to reshare that moment that he shared with her. Or maybe he didn't share it with her. I still am unclear on that. Did she pull that out of him? Did he share it? Did the beast let her see that so that maybe that would make her weak and, and her vulnerable if he needed it? I'm really not sure who controlled that. But either way, uh, uh, L seeing that was going to be something that she could use later on as a tool to kind of um, weaken Billy a little bit. So while they're weakening the beast, his connection to the beast is uh, fraying a little bit. And then she goes in with the emotional attack. And, uh, and I kind of like how this ended though, because when Billy died, I mean, he could, he did kind of die as a good guy. I'm not buying the fact that after the monster pushed that tentacle through his chest, that there was any breath in him at all. He was dead at that point, but for some reason he had like 10 more seconds and Max could get there long enough for him to apologize. I liked that he was humanized at the end. I liked that, that he didn't, uh, want the creature to get L and, and, uh, prevented that from happening, giving her time to scoot away and uh, time for the uh, the machine to get shut down and that connection be broken, which, of course, he had no idea was going on because that all happened outside of his scope of vision. The monster didn't know that was happening either. So, uh, but I really like the way that played out. I like that he had his last moment in the show as a good guy. And, you know, obviously you kind of feel a lot more for him after seeing the scenes on the beach than you did before, because now at least we understand why he's a dick. It doesn't justify it, but you give a, a little understanding to why he hates the world and why he just cares about getting what he can out of it and not uh, not setting roots anywhere. So Billy dies. Max has her last couple seconds with her. He gets to say, I'm sorry. Um, and, uh, and, and the whole thing ends, you know, uh, monster goes boom. There's fire in the mall. So I it looked kind of like the monster was catching on fire. So I don't know if it burned up or not. But certainly with a completely destroyed mall, uh, with evidence out on the streets, there's no way that the whole town doesn't know what happened now. They might not want to believe it. They might not get the true version of it. But certainly that they know now that something is going on on this show. And that brings us to the epilogue, which I really, really loved. Um, it was really long. It, it was more like the, the first episode of the next season, but uh, there was a lot in here that I, I really, really like. Um, now that Hopper's gone, Joyce herself really has no reason to stay in this town. She can take Elle with her, which she does, but, uh, you know, didn't want to stay in town for the kids' sake, for the unity of, of them. She's like, I just got to go before something else happens. And it's certainly understandable. She's a single mom. She's got two kids to look out for. And even though Jonathan's really old enough to be on his own, you kind of or just about because he's 17 but uh you kind of you get it i mean she just wants to get her kids away to safety you can stay in touch with these other people you can write letters we didn't have the internet yet so you couldn't send emails but you could certainly keep in communication i don't know how far away they're going i don't know if they're staying in the same state or not uh, but there is obviously going to be quite a distance because they were saying you could come back for thanksgiving and i could come here for christmas and that sort of thing So you really feel for the kids at this point, because after everything they've been through, it's almost like they're being punished because of it, that their their little band is getting broken up. And um, 
a couple of the most important ones that have been the connective tissue for them are getting separated from the rest of the group. And you know that that also means that the dynamics between the rest of the group will change because the unity is different now. And it's the usual, you know, oh, yeah, we'll stay in touch. And everybody says that when they move and then half the people don't. But uh, but it was definitely uh, an, an emotional moment. See, you know, it's always seeing the house that you've lived in being all packed up and seeing your room empty for the first time in years or maybe the first time ever. Um, because I'm assuming that Jonathan was uh, that they were living there when Jonathan was born because he said 17 years of my life. But uh, that could just be his stuff. But uh, but it is emotional. I mean, you start going through all these memories that you've had in a place. And, and I get like that every time I move, even if I've only been in a place for a year. I think back to the things I've created, the experiences that I've had, the, the good and the bad. And, uh, you know, you get a little bit misty eyed or whatever, at least I do. So, you know, if he'd been there his whole life in that house, then, yeah, sure, it's going to be uh, pretty tough. And then having to deal with uh, being separated from Nancy on top of that adds an, an even bigger wave of emotion to it. And, uh, you know, that had to be hard for him. And then the same thing with Joyce. I mean, she's been in that house forever and uh, having to leave it, leave all the memories behind, uh, looking at the walls where she had the letters up and the, and the Christmas lights and, and being the communication to her son. I mean, there's so many things that have happened while they've been in that house. So it's, it's got to be tough. And you really, really feel for them. I think they played this so well between the, uh, the music choices, the looks on their faces, the gentleness in their voices, the, the emotion. It was very, very powerful. And, and I give mad props to everybody on the production for pulling this off because it was absolutely fantastic. And I love the little uh, sort of 80s um, detective show thing that they did because even down to the the sound design of the voiceover, slightly grainy, um, it seemed very uh, 80s VHS uh, news report story like the the kind of shows that we had at the time. And I thought it was very, very well done. I love the way they presented it, totally the way it would have been done at the time. And uh, of course, now everything's a little cleaner, a little more sophisticated. So it's, it doesn't have quite the era of um, shock value like sewage or, or uh, waste products being dumped. Like just that, you know, let's throw everything in here we can and then that'll get people to tune in. And then we'll just talk about the stuff that's important like they do on the news all the time. So uh, in fact, they even went into like uh, Satanism and, and all that. And I remember like in the 80s, anytime anything happened, it was always... This is of the devil. Backwards masking is satanic. Dungeons and Dragons is satanic, uh, which, of course, then went on to as other things were developed, like Mortal Kombat and, and all that. Judas Priest was satanic. And, you know, all these bands, if they did anything, Black Sabbath, uh, you know, anything that was was slightly questionable, it was the devil's work. And it was a very strange time for uh, for us back in that uh, in that era. So I really liked that they included the Satanism. But I also like the fact that the mayor has been caught. And I don't know if that was Joyce doing it. I don't know if that was, uh, you know, the secretary or whatever led to all of that. But somehow, in, in the end, we know the mayor is going to get his uh, just desserts for everything that he did that he was involved with. And uh, I'm, I was very happy about that. I love that little look that he shot the cameraman at the end as if the cameraman's to blame for uh, <laughs> what he's going through. But it was uh, it was a very, very powerful ending. I think one of the best I've ever seen. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I rank that with like the, the season finales of shows that have been in the top, like the end of MASH or or the end of Lost or things like that. But it was definitely for a season ending, probably one of the best ever. And uh, I'm really, really anxious to see what happens come season four, uh, how far away the, the group is from each other, how 
powerful the unity remains between them, how uh, Elle rests up and gets her her battery recharged, as she mentioned to Hopper. And uh, it's, it's going to be really, really interesting. But um, yeah, very, very powerful uh, ending. And you know, the, the cute little uh, exchange between uh, Lucas and Max with the never-ending story and pissing Dustin off and the sadness between uh, Jonathan and Nancy and, uh, and, and with Joyce and, and the little sweet moment between Will and Mike uh, with the Dungeons and Dragons thing. Um, and I like that Dustin gave the Dungeons and Dragons thing to that little brat. Um, I thought that was kind of cute. Maybe that'll sweeten her up a little bit. Sorry, I just the, her character is just so over the top for me. Um, but one of the one of the more powerful moments actually came before that when uh, when they're towards the end and uh, Joyce is just getting out of the the bunker and there's soldiers everywhere and she sees Will and they're they're hugging and um, and you see the shot of L standing out there and you see to the right of her where it's lit uh, the rain is just coming down and then the helicopter passes over behind her head and that just that powerful shot of the rain and the way that it was lit and the expressions on her face as she's coming to understand yet deny at the same time that her dad has just died, that he's not coming back, that she's never going to see him again. And I thought that was so brilliantly acted. Um, just absolutely amazing. And Joyce, um, the look on Joyce's face as she's trying to convey it without letting go of, of will or really revealing to will yet that that's happened. Um, just a, a, a tour de force, a tour de force, tour de force performance, as far as I'm concerned. And, um, but there was another little surprise in all that. And look, Dr. Owens is back. He's not dead. Oh, I am shocked. Yeah, uh, not at all. Uh, I think that they just did a great job of uh, keeping him out of it for now. But I really never actually believed that he was gone. It's just too bad he didn't find that place like 30 minutes earlier and could have prevented everything from happening that did for as long as it was there. Um I I guess I'm a little unclear still as to where this Russian base was because it looked like the same opening that they had closed. But if that was the case, then that would have been the other lab that, that Joyce and Hopper visited earlier in the season. So was there another thing that was sealed up? Was it another door that they found to that same, you know, upside down or that same other side? I'm really not clear on how that exactly played out. But certainly eventually they found it and um, and they're going to go do whatever they're going to do with that. Obviously, that will be an integral point for season four, what happens with that facility. It's, uh, you don't really know for sure, but you're guessing that part of, well, we'll get to that in a second. But uh, but I thought that was great. And then um, for a little comedic uh, relief, there was the scene <laughs> of Robin and Steve applying at the video store where our dear friend and sadly underused character, Keith, is back. We only saw Keith uh, briefly in season two, uh, where he was working at the uh, the arcade. And uh, I, I really like this guy's character. He's so um, blasé, but yet uh, demanding and, and controlling at the same point. He, he's a very interesting and, and well-played character. I, I like the actor, too. His expressions are fantastic. And uh, he's like the, the ultimate nerd. Like, I'll hire you based on whether I think your top three movie selections are good or not. Uh, you know, like that's, that's awesome. And, uh, and, and it ends, you know, with them driving away and Elle's just, you know, tearing up in the passenger seat and Will's just tearing up in the passenger seat as he's driving behind the truck with, uh, with Jonathan and, uh, Joyce is driving the the truck and, uh, it's, it's a tough moment. And then you see 
the kids as they're watching them drive away. And, you know, if any of you, I mean, you know, we, we all had to either move away or have our, our dear close friends move away at some point in our childhood. And I, 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 it actually brought me back to a couple of moments like that, that I remember very dear friend of mine, uh, when I was very young, he lived just a few houses down the street. And I remember when he moved and, and just standing there watching him walk down the street towards his house for the last time. And, I want to say I was maybe seven, six or seven years old. And it definitely brought back memories of that. And it it was like in a summer afternoon or like early evening when the sun was starting to set. I mean, it's one of those images that you just have in your mind and that they try to recreate in movies because the timing of it was just perfect. And, uh, you know, what was that like 40 years ago for me? And uh, I still can recall that visual very, very strongly. And, uh, it was tough. You know, it's a tough moment to get through if you can identify with it. And that's part of what writing plays on is the fact that you've probably been through something similar. And even though you feel for the kids in the show, you're also kind of touching on similar memories for yourself. And that makes it even 10 times more powerful as you're feeling for the kids going through what you felt and how sad you were in those moments. Uh, and then uh, Will goes home. I'm sorry, Mike goes home and uh, hugs his mom, Karen our, our last shot of them together. And, uh, everybody just kind of goes on and, and, you know, they go home, Max is in her bed dealing with the fact that her stepbrother's dead, even though she hated his guts. Uh, that's still an incredibly difficult thing to take. And, uh, and then it ends and then the credit starts. And I didn't realize this when I first watched it, but for you guys that stuck through the credits, there was a bonus scene. So if you haven't watched that, stop the podcast, go back and watch the end credits right now, because as in typical Stranger Things fashion, they don't just wrap things up. They say, hey, there's more coming. And uh, you see them go back to the uh, the underground base and they're however many levels down. A couple of guards uh, are walking by a shell, uh, the, some cells and one of them says, not the American. As, he goes, as, as one of the guards goes for the door, the other one says, not the American. And uh, you have to wonder, are they saying that Hopper's not really dead? He could have, very easily could have gotten knocked off of the platform and down on on a lower level of the ground somewhere. We know that there was a distance between the ground and that platform after the initial experiment uh, in the the opening of season one, where they were touching the the one uh, military guy was touching the wall. Uh, When they came back to that machine later on, the ground was much lower. So something had happened in between times. And so uh, I think it's perfectly plausible because Joyce could only see the platform. She couldn't see what was below it, uh, behind it or anything. So it's very possible that Hopper did not die. And I can't, you know, if it were Lost or or another show like uh, The Shield, I could see them killing him off. But I, I honestly don't necessarily think they killed Hopper off. And uh, I could be wrong, of course, but there's some American in there. So who are we missing? Who is it that was on the show and has been taken away? Who is unaccounted for? The only one I can think of is Hopper. As far as I know, everybody else has been, you know, they showed everyone else that we know who they are. I'm pretty sure that Murray came out of the base with Joyce and we just didn't see him again after Joyce saw Will. But I don't think it's Murray. I'll have to double check that scene, but I'm pretty sure it's not Murray. So it that that leads me to believe it has to be Hopper. Now, what kind of condition he's in, I don't know. But even though the machine liquefied some other people, it didn't necessarily liquefy people 
in a 360 degree radius. He may have been standing in a part that uh, that wasn't going to happen. So it wouldn't make sense that whatever the machine was going to do, it would just lay out waste in 360 degrees of itself. So some, some zones had to be safer than others. I'm not saying that he's not in bad shape, but I think it's very possible that he survived that. And they just were, he wasn't in a, a capacity to be able to get back to Joyce before she left. And they probably found him. And, uh, and that was the end of that, but they would have had to have moved very, very quickly because the army guys were in there very fast from the time that, that, uh, that Joyce shut the machine down. So, uh, either the army guys didn't see him and the Russians did or something, but I think it's Hopper. I, I don't really think that he's dead. Um, I could be wrong, but I love the music through all of this too. Um, the, uh, the hypnotic arpeggios, the, the, just the tonality of the music and the, the pulse of it, because it's really a pulse, almost like a, a, a fast running heartbeat. And uh, it's really cool. It really just kind of drags you into the to the action. And you know something's going to get really intense because even though they don't go for the American, they go for the cell next to him. And it's some Russian guy that we have no idea who he is. And he's obviously about to be a sacrifice. And they take him down to uh, what kind of looks like the dungeon from Return of the Jedi. And they lock him in this room. And then this door opens. And then this monster comes through, kind of like the Rancor monster. And um, he's pleading with them. Like, he knows where they're taking him. He knows what's up. I don't know how he knows, but he knows. And as soon as he gets in there, you know, of course, he's begging them, please don't do this. Don't do this. Let me out. And uh, what comes through the door? A demidog. Of course it is. And I'm a little confused on how these work because it looks like their faces are four panels that open up, kind of like the the mouth from Predator. They just open up into four sections. But when they actually open up, there's five sections. So I'm going to guess there's a section folded down inside of the top. And then when they open up, it opens into five sections as opposed to the beast, which only had three. And uh, I forgot to mention when, when they were at the cabin and L uh, through the roof, ripped the beast's head apart. Uh, and then later at the beginning of this episode, uh, Joyce was asking, are you sure it's dead? The, the monster had the ability to repair itself. I mean, it could just uh, go back into jelly and then reform itself. So I, I knew it could be re- it could be repaired one way or another, and I was not at all surprised when it showed up in the mall perfectly intact, because really they only damaged it. Kind of like in Terminator Two when they shoot the missile into to Robert Patrick, and and uh, you know he's all ripped in half and he's screaming like a pig for some reason doing pig squeals, and uh, you know at some point he's just going to be able to form back together. So they've only slowed him down, which is what Elle did with this. She didn't kill him; she just slowed him down because he can self repair. Um, so, so he, his face opens up a little bit different than the Demi dog. So I'm not sure uh, what the difference is between them, but what, a, what a powerful fucking episode. I mean, seriously, a fantastic season, absolute kudos to everybody. I know there were a lot of things that I was uh, picky about, but that's just, uh, that's just because I'm one of those people that sees those kind of things. And I remember the first movie I really started seeing continuity issues with was uh, Die Hard and probably only because I saw it 10 or 12 times at the dollar theater in Colorado Springs. <laughs> but uh, you start to notice things like, wait a minute, wasn't his shirt dirtier a minute ago? Was that cut there and gone and back again? How did he slide down the elevator shaft and catch that elevator uh, or that opening when he was moving away from it? That's not even possible. Uh, stuff like that. And so I, I just kind of naturally pick out those kind of things. And it's not to be mean. It's just points of interest. I want everybody to write things better and do uh, you know do a job, uh, create worlds that we can believe in and things that don't bring us out of the story. And for me, 
uh, some of those things do bring me out of the story. They bring me back to where I realize I'm in a movie theater and I can see the edges of the screen again instead of just being like not even realizing I'm I'm even a person. I'm just so enthralled in the existence of this world that I don't even realize I'm a physical entity anymore. Um, but yeah, I, I love the season. Fantastic job to everyone. Um, I hate that it's over. I, I really, I really hate that it's over and, uh, I really can't wait for season four. It's already uh, listed on IMDb. So it's, uh, it looks like they've been picked up for another season. And I don't know why on earth they wouldn't be a uh, hugely popular show. And I can't imagine Netflix would drop it right now. It's it's absolutely hot. They made people wait a year and a half for this season. I'm sure the the rankings uh, of uh, views are are through the roof, and uh, it's it's definitely with merit. So uh, fantastic, uh, great scene with Elle reading the letter. Um, such an emotional and powerful thing. And uh, I just want to thank you guys for uh, hanging with me through all eight episodes and all eight reviews of Stranger Things season three. I certainly hope that you've enjoyed it. And if you've listened this far, I'm going to guess that you have. Uh, otherwise, I'm just talking to dead air and uh, don't know it, but I wouldn't anyway. Uh, thank you guys. Really, seriously, please uh, feel free to share the podcast. If you uh, if you like it, uh, feel free to share it, do a review, uh, do just a star rating on iTunes or uh, you know, like the show on YouTube, subscribe to the channel. I do. You can subscribe on iTunes as well as Podbean. I'm not sure about Google Play. Uh, my website will eventually have a subscribe button when I can figure out how to get it to work. And uh, so it was originally part of the Podbean player, but it didn't work properly. And uh, so I'm still scrambling with that. But uh, that'll come in time. My website will be down uh, soon for a couple of days as I do some rebuilding, but uh, it won't be down for long at all. And uh, thank you guys so much. If I could just leave you with a handful of words to sum up all of this uh, to in, in thank you for everything, for hanging in there with me. We will be back on uh, Tuesday night, early Wednesday morning with our regularly scheduled episode of the Haskin cast podcast. Got a few more episodes in July and then uh, the August break will be coming swiftly after that. If something crops up, I may, uh, I may put out an episode, but announcements will go out if that is the case. So uh, thank you very much. And if you would, just make sure that you keep the door open three inches. Thanks, everybody. 